you know, here I was, uh, this Dutchman living in London, looking for work. I got this job. I was officially a mime teacher. Then I discovered that most students were not interested in mime. Uh, most of them were very poor at it. I said, well, instead of teaching mime, do you mind if I focus on sound and movement? Um, and these two when I was together. in my 20s. The phone rang. There was an agent. Yeah, there's this thing. Someone has dropped out. Could you start next week? 60 schools. And it just goes sure, on. Sure, of course. On. Yes. Yeah. You know, yes. in, in those days, I never said no, and uh, and I didn't have a show. So I called a friend, she was teaching mime at a mime school in Amsterdam, and would you like to join me on this adventure? And she said yes. Uh, playback basically is we play back the stories that people tell. Well, in play, a story comes alive. It, it is through stories, isn't it, that we connect in our humanity. Hi. I'm Nathaniel Skye, the host of the Immersion Nation podcast. Here, the masters of immersive experience create and conjure, muse and imagine the cultural revolution that is unfolding before us. That is immersive entertainment. Welcome. Today's discussion is quite wide-ranging. Touch on everything from teaching mind school to sound and movement and the unexpected separation of those two things and the way that those two things can be combined in unexpected ways to enable improv and storytelling. We talk about the importance of telling one's own story and, of course, the way that stories knit culture together. We have joining us Billy Angel of StoryWorks. Now, if you haven't heard it, the counterpart to Billy Angel's creative brilliance is his wife and co-creator, Marsha Angel, you can find a discussion with her on episode three of the Immersion Nation podcast. If you listen through this episode and decide that you want a little bit more, either way, I think you'll enjoy listening to this particularly fascinating chat, this multicultural, multi-generational perspective on immersive theater. Billy, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right. So to start off with, if you were to choose a fictional world that you would want to live in in some capacity, what fictional world would you choose? Uh, there's an, an interesting little extra you mentioned that you want to live in. Mm. I love the fictional world of uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, the famous oh, yes. Lewis stories, that whole series. But I'm not so sure if I, if I would want to live there. <laughs> fair, fair. And when I grew up... Um, James Bond was sort of new on the horizon, mm, and I was very mm. impressed with the whole James Bond thing. You know, by now it's a completely different feel. Uh, and so he goes, fictional world. Which fictional? I mean, there was an amazing series, uh, Lancelot in Britain, uh, sort of knights and and horse riding and sword fights, and that was a you know an impressive, very boyish fictional world certainly the ring sunbell oh yeah like i've seen snippets of it the lord of the ring is obviously an incredible very large fictional world again i don't think i would want to live there <laughs> Fair uh, enough. Any, any fictional world would be really some sort of beautiful beachy place <laughs> uh, you know especially well in any capacity you don't even necessarily have to be on the front lines of the conflict so what maybe if you could choose one of those worlds and be in any role of your choosing um what would sound appealing from that from that angle or slant, what have you? Okay. 
Well, uh, let's go with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's an amazing story, and the whole series is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you I, read all of them out of curiosity? I, yes, I I have read them a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was younger, I read all the way through, and later on, I did it again. Uh, I've seen at least two stage productions of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, And wonderful. then there's f- a few films now, mm-hmm. which were produced in, in Britain, I think, and interesting. Um, and uh, in London, when I was living there, I uh, put a children's show together, theatre production, which was very much inspired by The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, and all right. The show was called The King's Kids. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and there was a, a witch in there, you know, and um, and I was the king in that in that stage production, uh, <laughs> holding the whole thing together, as, as it were. Um, I mean, the the part of Aslan is beautiful. Yeah, and I, I love how C.S. Lewis has invented that. I have to say, insofar as the movies um, that came out, I think one thing that kind of irked me about the way that the stories were presented is that it was it almost felt like it was geared towards a more children-friendly, family-friendly type of audience, whereas I feel like the texture of the actual novels oftentimes had a lot more kind of, a lot more gravity to it, a lot more of a serious context insofar as, you know, kind of speaking candidly about, like, just warfare and conflict and the difficulties that came with that and, you know, the kids kind of growing up in the world, yes, Lion, the Witch, and the yes. Wardrobe. I think you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and in that sense, the, the Lord of the Ring has really sort of grown up and, and that the whole film series is totally geared toward a, a wide audience, you know, a pretty serious, yeah, in, intense piece of storytelling mm-hmm. there. It's not uh, your typical children's fair. Yeah, uh, but then you know I have been a children's performer for many years in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I have learned to take children totally seriously, seriously, and and to look for a sort of dynamic children's theater where incredible stuff happens, and I've come to sort of um, dislike that whole um, that kind of thing that commercial people push that you know the kids is for the little kids and and then the grown-up stuff is for the grown-ups but now if you look at what the disney films do um they have become quite sophisticated or the pixar movies for instance yeah yeah certainly Uh, you know i hear there's now number four of uh toy story is out I'm keen to see it. Oh, you know, I, and that I is, feel bad for not knowing that was out. That's the kids. <laughs> that's the kids' world, and, and that I would love to live in that world of Toy Story. And uh, I saw a documentary on Pixar um, with um, Steve Jobs even involved. There. Yeah, yeah. Um, incredible story, and uh, they struggled to learn to tell good stories, and they discovered, you know, apart from getting hold of all the computer techniques that mm-hmm. were very complex and very sophisticated and enormous challenges. They also had to learn to what good storytelling is. And that's a whole other massive yeah. challenge. And they got it wrong a couple of times and then they learned and they keep getting it right, which I find very exciting. And those films, those stories are amazing because they are yeah. good for kids, but they're good for everybody. We've all got a kid inside of us. And if you can appeal to that uh, sort of naive or not so much naive, but that spontaneous person that you have inside of you, you know, a very honest person, perhaps. Um, I love that. So um, 
you must stop me when I go on to I did a children's program in the in the Netherlands for Dutch television. Right. And initially I was invited to make a program for the younger kids, mm-hmm. five, six, seven-year-olds. And um, I was having such difficulty doing that, you know, relating to just that age group. I, there are people who are good at that, not me. And uh, whatever I wrote and produced, it, it always kind of crept up in age. It was more better suited to the 10 or 11, 12, 13-year-olds. Certainly, certainly. And uh, gradually over time, the company actually accepted that I, I said, well, I prefer to do a program for all ages, and, and it's just the kid in you. It should be a family program. Mm-hmm. And eventually they made that official, and uh, the program I did there was called Jacob's Ladder. Uh, it was labeled a family program in the end. Yeah, certainly. Um, of course, when, when there's younger kids or kids full stop, you have to be careful with certain subjects. And, of course, you know, you of course. You have to draw lines. And it is a delicate balance. It's like, I feel like, um, going back to Pixar briefly, like, say, I was I was very impressed, or impressed by The Incredibles 2 um, because... A, I feel like Pixar definitely did a good job of evolving with the medium as the as the animation, the tools, and the uh, the level of sophistication they've been able to work with has you know increased over the years as technology has improved. Um, they they didn't try and remake the Incredibles one. They didn't try and take that. They recaptured enough of the texture that it felt felt like it was still homogenous with the overall kind of the portrayal the world of the original but at the same time they evolved with it and they also did a really good job of making it hey here is this thing and there's you know all these very accessible to many age groups situ- situations and scenarios but then there are certain monologues like the um uh the main villains monologue who I feel terrible for blanking on at the moment but they it, that kind of start to dig into more serious um context about media and kind of some of the questions of our times and i was like wow that was just a really brilliant way to layer on all those things um so i think that so working from that concept of like what kind of experience you're trying to you're trying to give and who you're trying to give it to i'm curious in speaking to specifically your experience with a playback improv um as kind of my understanding is that's your principal experience with immersive and interactive theater uh, sh- sure, uh, but my training, as it were, is totally uh, the children's productions that I've done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, when I was in my 20s, uh, I studied acting, and then I was looking for work. And, you know, you're having trouble getting hold of work, whatever. And I was impatient and creative and full of energy. And before soon, I teamed up with a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And before you knew it, we had a kids' production. <laughs> you know, a couple of days between us, and we had a show. And Suddenly things just evolved. That's just kind of how it goes. And we, we found a place where we could do it, and the people just loved it. And we had understood certain things, and, um, and the kids didn't intim- intimidate us. We were just having fun with the kids. And out of there, stuff grew. So um, immersive theater, at one time... I was invited to do a circuit of 60 schools, primary schools, elementary schools, mm-hmm. that age, age group, six to sort of 12-year-olds, and, uh, and I didn't have a show. And the phone rang. There was an agent. Yeah, there's this thing. Someone has dropped out. Could you start next week? 60 schools, and it just goes on and on. Oh, wow. Uh, over a period of like four or five weeks. Mm-hmm. All those schools. And 
you know, in, in those days, I never said no. Sure, right, of course, right. yes, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. And 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 then after, you know, he said, "So, what are you going to do?" I said, "Well, I'll call you back on that," you know. And so I called a friend who was actually a, a, a lady who was a mime teacher, and she oh, had just right. she had just dropped out of. She was teaching mime at a mime school in Amsterdam, and she had dropped out because she wanted to go into acting. Right, right. And I'd made friends with her, and uh, she was older than me and uh, more like my teacher. She was like 10 years older or whatever, and uh, maybe even more. And I called her. I said, you know, this opportunity has come. Would you like to join me on this adventure? And she said yes. Wonderful. So then we got together and we figured, what, what are we going to do? So we called, we said yes to the circuit. We called the schools. We said, could the kids, before we arrive, write stories? And then we'll get there early. We study their stories and we give them an improvisation based on their stories. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. And that's what we did. And, um, and it was an amazing experience. Yeah. But I must say, sometimes it was brilliant and other times we just struggled and we, you know, we got through but afterwards we'd say mm, that wasn't it should be better than this and after some 10 or so schools we were able to pull together all those story materials and we actually got together over a weekend and we put a show together uh, but the show was still very open to kids response and there was different routes we could take in the way the story evolved depending on how the kids responded to us Mm -hmm. And it was all about fear. It was about a dragon who's un invisible and undercover and hidden and would come out occasionally and, and a boy who would have to fight the dragon and all kinds. So what kind of um, how in what ways did the kids shape the story um, that you were performing? Uh, mostly by shouting back at us or by pointing things out to us, or uh, occasionally I had a choice, and I say, uh, the choice was given, shall I do this or shall I do that? And we just ask for hands. You know, who, who thinks we do this? Who thinks we do that? Just to bring the kids in without them kind of overtaking the, the show altogether. Of course, of course. Um, it's a tricky balance, especially yes. with kids, I can imagine. Yes. But I've learned over, over the years, I, I, I've done kids' shows for about 10 years, and we do at least two shows a year. And so I learned over the years... Um, you have to keep kids fully engaged with the program, and that means you have to uh, you have to tell a good story. Yeah, certainly. And, and you can't mess around. There's got to be a good story there. And you can also literally engage them as you were doing. Yes, you can you bring do. them into the process That's of creation. Right. And um, and they are on your side, you know. And 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 kids help you to bring out your, the emotion, but also the choices, and to and to 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 find the drama and to celebrate the drama as much as you can. In any case, I I learned to improvise there with the kids as an audience, and <clears throat> that's my basis. Now we're doing playback, and it's a completely different beast, but it's a lot of fun. And if we could pause here just super briefly, so you could explain, um, or if you could define uh, playback for those who are listening. I know we. Um, touched on briefly in episode three um, with Marsha, who is Billy's wife and partner in drama and doing all the incredible things that happen here at StoryWorks. Um, but in case you um, did not miss that episode, for those who did not hear episode three, um, could you explain your perspective? Of course. Uh, playback. Uh, playback basically is we play back the stories that people tell. And we ask people for personal stories. 
they tell the story, we play the story back. Now, uh, Marcia is the conductor, so she invites the audience to tell her the story. She interacts with them. She's very good at making people feel at ease and inviting little things. Which um, I'm sure, like, that's that's such a big part of the, the whole thing and having to make people feel comfortable with kind of being, being open in that space um, with oftentimes people they don't necessarily know telling personal stories. Yes, and there's another element to it. Sometimes people come with stories prepared, but then you find those stories get in the way rather than they are helpful. So it really the best way to arrive is to be blank, to just walk in relaxed and not worry about anything and not try and think of anything. It's really interesting that you say that too because um, recently I spoke with uh, Christoph Vischer who does an immersive experience called Tales by Candlelight. And basically that story is a, or that experience is a story creation process where he uses scent and setting to help construct a world and construct a story with people. And he was, one of the things he commented on was the fact that oftentimes people who come in with say like some, some role playing or Dungeons and Dragons type of experience almost wind up having a trickier time getting into the experience than those who come in with no preconceptions because those who come in with some kind of experience have have a line of thinking about how things should be and how they're going to go as opposed to just kind of being open. Yes. And uh, Marsha is all about the unconscious (laughs) where so much lives, you know, and it is available, but, uh, but you have to um, you have to wait for it to come up, as it were. And so what we'll do, um, the evening starts off and she's kind of joking around, but she might already see something. Oh, look, there's lots of people with a blue top here tonight. Mm-hmm. There's something blue about this evening. Uh, and, and that could be a start and the ball gets rolling. Um, other times you might just say, uh, you know, give us a color of what your day was like. Well, my day was like light green. And then she'll give that color to the team, and I'm one of the team, and we play it back. And all of a sudden, the, the audience goes like, oh, that's fun. Oh, uh, yeah, what they just did, movement, sound and movement, had an element of light green. Yeah, I, I, could, I, I get that. Yeah, and starting and with something kind of simple to simple and make it more accessible right off the bat before right. you kind of put this ask onto the audience. And it's all about triggering the imagination. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you do that best when you're relaxed, of course. Certainly. And, and the same is true for the, for the place. You try and stay relaxed. At the same time, you've got to make sure you cut out any other thinking, any other, I have difficulty, you know, something comes up and my mind is already off on a, on a little trail and I have to Certainly. stop that to really stay listening, you know, keep listening to every word and keep watching uh, even the way people tell something, their body language is important. So they tell a story. Uh, it starts off really small, but then after fairly, after 20 minutes, whatever, uh, things get a little more substantial. And Marcia will say, well, it, there may be, you know, you might have a conflict in your life. On the one hand, you would like to do this, but then on the other hand, uh, you also feel the opposite that would be useful. And you're struggling with that. Uh, so, and people come up with that. And then we call that a short form. We play that back in in a short form, a short theatrical form. And just for context, this is um, typically three um, improv actors on the stage in a very black box theater setting um, with some minimal prop options around to reenact these various various things. Yeah, well said. Uh, At one time, we actually had a lineup of five people. Uh, we're oh now, wow! We're now down to three, mm-hmm. and sometimes one of us can't make it. 
the last time it was just myself and one of the ladies. That's fine too. Though at one time it was just me. I was the only actor in the whole team. Oh wow! And Marcia was <laughs> no the pressure. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> but you know, you're on a winner in a way because uh, the whole audience is thinking, "How's he going to do that all on his own?" And I'm thinking that too, of course. <laughs> but at the same time, you find ways, and then all of a sudden, everybody goes like, "Wow, this this is amazing! It it can all be done," you know. So I I'll act all the parts. From one to the other and back to the one and on to the other. And uh, I mean, at one time, I actually did a, a stage production for kids again, the story of Joseph, the Old Testament okay, Joseph. Okay, certainly, and certainly. And I acted all the parts. And I actually prepared and, and, and had body language and different sounds, vocal sounds for all the different parts. There's about 10 or 12 of them. In the story, all right, yeah, and I had so some just simple a few, props as well. Not exactly playing two people, uh, exactly, and and I used some some uh, cloth materials for costume, as it were, and I I told the whole story and acted all the parts. A whole lot of fun, just so much fun. And there's a lot to be said about the the necessity of being able to operate um, and act on identity in a fluid way. Being, I mean, that is acting in so many ways. It is being able to kind of understand and access different identities, different different characters' storylines, and just perspectives in order to be able to shift from one place to another. Um, though that said, speaking of shifting, um, I think potentially now might be a good time to jump into our Make It Immersive segment, if you would be down. Yeah, go for it. Wonderful. Sky, go for it. So, operating with... The world of C.S. Lewis, the world of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, insofar as making that a an interactive theater experience, uh, an experience where the the audience, or rather just the guests, have some some agency insofar as participating in the world or choosing how the world unfolds. What comes to mind insofar as creating a version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the audience has has agency over how things proceed in the world. It doesn't have to be the line, the witch, and the world story, okay. but rather just the world. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I have, at one time, I did a show for kids again, uh, and I couldn't get a team together. Right, right. And so it was just, in the end, I, I decided, okay, I'll just do this by myself. And it was a story about a circus. It was a great story. And I worked it out that I... Uh, invited kids, but in fact, I just now remembered there were also some adult parts in there, but usually when there's a kid's audience, there are parents there, and I organized the different parts before the story started, and some of that was prepared beforehand, uh, you know, in discussion with the, the promoter or whoever was putting on the show. Certainly. Um, but I said, yeah, I need a, a small group of volunteers. I need like three adults and three kids uh, and the kids need to be fairly capable, if you like, you know, and uh, not too young. Yeah, certainly, so certainly. And they would select those for me. Because if you were to ask for volunteers right at the start of the show, then the entire audience would would arrive on the stage. You yeah, know, yeah. With kids especially. So that was prepared beforehand. And But um, I would give them minimal instructions before the show. And then when the show started, I would set it up officially. And, and and they had a costume, they had some of them had masks. And then I begin to tell the story and they would act what I was speaking. And uh, it was a, a fascinating experience. Okay, so immersive. almost like a a layered type of playback almost where you're sitting here, you're telling the story, they're acting it out. Um, 
were they acting it out completely or were they kind of were they were they always on script or did they kind of did you adjust the storyline to how they were interpreting what you were saying? Yeah, I did have to make adjustments to kind of go with what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would uh, I would let them act for a, a, a few minutes, a certain scene that I just explained. They do the scene and I stay out of it. And then I'd step back in and pick up what they had just yeah. produced. <laughs> You're like, all right, you know, where to go and, from and, here? Uh, <laughs> so the storyline w- was kind of fluid and flexible. Um, I, what also comes to mind is um, I've been to... As a young man, I've been to Paris many times, and there was a theater company, Théâtre du Soleil, All right. which I totally loved, and I, mm-hmm. I enjoyed seeing their productions. They worked in a big factory building that was empty, and that was their base. Yeah, and yeah. so they had different ways of doing shows. At one time, they had a show where they had built different sets in different parts of the factory building. And so they would take their audience throughout the evening from set to set, from corner to corner. And then in between scenes in different sets, different parts of the factory building, they would do storytelling. So there was a cast of, say, 20 people. And then um, as soon as the scene was finished in a certain corner of the building... Uh, they all they would all step step away from that scenery. And what year was this that you were um, that you were first introduced to this format of theater? Whoa, that was when I was like um, in the late seventies of. Wow. 1970s, okay. late 1970s, early 1980s. Because I'm sure some forms of that have been around for some time, but that's the earliest um, direct reference to that format of theater where you're bringing the audience from place to place. Because, of course, that's kind of one of the big staples of Sleep No More in New York, where, I mean, it's not necessarily the bringing the audience, but at the same, but, you know, the free roam of Sleep No More, letting the audience kind of go where they choose and working with it that way but a lot of it like that that way of bringing the audience from place to place is definitely kind of a big staple of immersive theater now you you know uh, sky it even goes back like a hundred years ago in england uh, in yorkshire there'd be the mystery plays and a whole town would act out gospel stories and um and different trades the the bakers the butchers the builders the gardeners, the the farmers, would all be given certain parts of the story. Oh, that's fascinating! I had and, no idea that was a thing. And they would build sets in the village, and the audience would just uh, walk from one set to the next. The whole village was involved. And then, of course, you think of uh, in Germany, Oberammergau. Uh, you, you might. I am not familiar with oh, Oberammergau. You, you want to look that up? Oberammergau. Yeah, that's been going for a hundred years. Sorry, do you have any idea at the top how you spell that? Just so I can um, link that up in the show O-B- notes. E R mm-hmm. Ober Amergau. Amer is A M A double M E R G A U. Ober Amergau. Okay, okay. Uh, that's a town in Germany, and they do the entire gospel story once every ten years. The whole town is involved, and as soon as the festival is done, they start preparations for the next one. They spend years preparing for the next round. By now, it's so popular. They do shows over a period of maybe two months. Oh, wow. And in all, all of it is done outdoors in, in a big auditorium. And uh, they are totally sold out. People from all over the world travel there. Uh, at one time, I was fl- flying the Atlantic Ocean, and the lady next to me was on her way to Ama- Ab- over Amagao. Oh, that's amazing. And she was telling me. And um, I've never actually been there, but I have a bunch of photo books at home 
I'd love to go there sometime. Could you describe what the experience is like from your understanding? Like, what is the format of it? How does it look? It's um, it's visually very powerful, mm-hmm. beautifully done. Um, it's every ten years is different. They do the gospel story, but they also throw in short stories from the Old Testament, which I think is powerful because when you study the gospel story, mm-hmm. there is all kinds of links to the Old Testament in the gospel story, and they act those out. So okay, so it's a retelling of biblical of biblical stories. Yes, the gospel is a biblical story, and that. That is the entirety of the Ober Amagao experience. Yes, and it goes on for four days, so it's it is uh, it's a very lengthy festival, mm-hmm. and their their productions, their evenings are like three or four hours per show per evening, and and there is four evenings. Wow, it's very big, fascinating, and, and that kind of speaks to like some s- some religious roots attached to kind of some of the origins of immersive theater, which actually makes a lot of sense considering that in a lot of ways. Um, the community of of church, I think, could oftentimes be kind of considered as some form of immersive theater to some degree as well, because there's the there's the interaction, some form of like there is. I feel like it's just some of the earliest examples of that kind of retelling of stories to share to share perspective um, and to reference kind of like uh, *Sapiens* by Yuval Noah Harari. If you've ever encountered that book, it's the idea of like using common stories as like a currency for trust like oh yes. hey i know you because we know the same stories and yes. so i know that i can at least trust you even though i've never met you yeah stories are powerful and stories are personal aren't they and you're not going to argue with someone's story and you're not going to want to do that when someone tells their story and they really tell it from their heart as we say you know it's a personal experience then it, really if things are good you just take that story in and you say afterwards you say thank you for telling me your story you know and you never enter into sort of political disagreements and fights over you know this and that and the other you just hear someone's personal story and you might even find later on that that person has a completely different view of life and different approach to everything but their personal story is still their personal story i found it amazing just recently it's been in the news uh, women who've been married to ISIS fighters. Oh, right, right. You know, and they have kids by these fighters, mm-hmm. and 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 ISIS has lost all of its territory, and that whole thing is being taken care of. Thank God, you know, wow, yeah. that was so dark and so crazy. And but now all of a sudden, there is a whole group of women who were linked to these guys. Yeah, um, most of these guys have disappeared, and a lot of them have died. Others have fled and whatever. And these women and their little kids are all of a sudden left. Now, what are we going to do with them? Interesting. And then, you know, initially people want to just hate them and say, well, you're part of the enemy. You, 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 you've got no rights and we want to do away with you, whatever. You know? Right, right. And then these people start telling their stories mm-hmm. and then everything changes. It's like, how complicit are you really within that? I mean, that kind of raises that question for so many contexts. How complicit are those on the inside of a narrative that they don't have perspective on to the perpetuation of that narrative when they don't know that there's an alternative. If you don't have the understanding that there's even another story of, of the world and every story of a culture to, to operate on, to live by, I mean, that's that like, that's 
like cults are the first thing that come to mind there. And I feel like that doesn't necessarily even capture the depth of that concept, but like cults and things like ISIS, things like um, very, very tight knit social structures that don't propagate perspective, I suppose. So definitely running down that rabbit hole for a little bit there. It (laughs) is through stories, isn't it, that we connect in our humanity, that we connect as person to person. So from stories, how about play? How about playing? Like, what do you see as the value of play? Well, in play, a story comes alive. Not play as in drama play, but in just the act of playing, if if that's at all helpful for context, just so I'm not um, confusing the terminology there. All right, maybe you're asking something else. Um, I was a teacher in a drama school in London for a number of years. All right, yeah. And my my remit was mime. I was officially a mime teacher. Uh, well, you know, here I, I was, uh, this Dutchman living mm-hmm. in London, looking for work. Uh, I had trained mime, but I also trained acting and music. Um, but I could, I got this job as a mime teacher. Um, but then I discovered in the school that most students were not interested in mime. Uh, most of them were very poor at it. You've got to have a talent for mime. It's very specific movement art. Yeah, I believe and, it. Um, and some people, you know, take to it, but that's a small minority. Most people find it extremely difficult, and it gets in the way of their acting and their, uh, their other uh, focuses, whatever. Um, but then I discovered something that everybody needs, and that is to learn to be creative with movement and, and then I added sound. And so I went to see the principal of the school and I asked him, I said, do you mind? Um, I'm finding that the students, uh, they have their text classes and they get good at text and, you know, very clever, very intellectual, but also understanding text, how to produce it, how to speak it. They also have their movement classes. They do jazz, they do gymnastics even and, and fencing and what have you. But they're having great difficulty bringing the two together. And, and, and the whole school was aware of that, that students could not put text and movement together. Interesting. Uh, because it was just too much for them. They were either going to just focus on the text and forget the movement or the other way around. And then, because I was in the movement department, I said, well, instead of teaching mime, do you mind if I focus on sound and movement, where these two come together? And the principal was interested. He said, go ahead. And so I, I was given a chance mm. to explore that with students in class, and they just loved it. So you're talking about play. We started to play with sound and movement, and uh, sound leading to movement, movement leading to sound, and that combination back and forth, and from very abstract to much more naturalistic, uh, sort of going toward character. Interesting. But never fully into text and never fully into uh, just being a character. And can you speak a little bit about those two things being compartmentalized? Because insofar as my understanding of acting, like obviously I'm aware of pantomime. I'm aware of the, you know, the very, you know, the the prose conveyed verbally or non-verbally in printed form. But I've never really considered them as very, very separate and compartmentalized things. I guess the concept of those things going together in drama is like, I didn't think that there was another option why were the why were the text and the speech versus the versus the movement so separate in that in that environment well that's a good question that is a good question you know a good actor is good in both departments and is also good at mixing the two but it takes 
years of training to learn to do that. But they're very, two very separate art forms in a lot they of ways. They are, and, and, and in most drama schools, the, the classes are separate classes. You go to your, you know, for your text classes and speech classes over here, and then you do your movement classes over there, and there's little in the middle. And, that is um, fascinating. And That's I had incredibly a chance to explore that middle. Um, and the reason, you know, in the middle, when you play with sound and movement, you are really pulling on the unconscious. And the unconscious is directly linked with your imagination. And, uh, and Marsha loves that. So in our playback training, we work on that all the time. So Marsha will give us, uh, the other day she gave me, uh, we were doing a training and she said, okay, Billy, your turn. Uh, please get up, there you are. And now we want to see an improvisation on something, something, something. And it was just way too difficult, complicated. And I'm tired and I da da da. And I said, well, I haven't got the faintest idea what to do with this now. And she says, well, move into it. Make some sounds and make some movement and let the movement and the sound take you into the theme. And, and it works like a dream. You start to play with some sound. You start to play with some movement on the theme that just, that's been given. And something begins to emerge. And then you expand on that, you, you enlarge it, you turn it around, you do this and the other. And out of that can come amazing improvisations. And I think it's very good for actors training because a good actor uh, gives you those bits that bubble up from the unconscious, the, that give you more insight. It comes from a deep place. So correct me, correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, to kind of synthesize uh, the the idea of what these concepts of movement and sound and kind of accessing that um, attaches to play. It's almost like, or from what I'm understanding, you're saying that play is almost kind of like a different language. It's accessing a different kind of understanding and a different form of communication through a different, or either the different um, medium or different combination of mediums. It's a different way of understanding Yes. Well, the word play, of course, when musicians, they play. Um, they play yeah, a piece. Yeah, fair point. Fair point. Musicians play a piece. When actors do an, an item, do a drama, you don't say, well, yeah, that you play the part. You play the part. The, the same word. And, and in sport, you know, you play sport. And you play that sport. Um, so how would you define play then? Well, play is certainly... Uh, there are certain rules that you work with, and those rules help you to develop something because otherwise it'd just be chaos. Um, so you improvise. It, it is an improvisation. And certainly in sport, you know, nobody knows what, what the game is going to look like, what, what it's going to be. It's, it's an improvisation. Uh, in music, the, the music is written. So that's, you wouldn't call that an improvisation. In acting, yeah, let's say the play is written, but um, I've studied acting, I've, I've directed, written, and done all kinds of things. Um, if you want to keep a play that is being done over a long period of time, if you want to keep that fresh, you need to work with subtext and you need to make changes. Um, so the text stays the same, the movements stay the same more or less, but as an actor, you have certain choices behind it that are never shown to the public directly. Yeah, certainly. And, and, and in order to keep your work fresh. Um, that's a whole study in itself. Uh, but you play with that. 
And that's that's an element of improvisation. Yeah. Playback is of course in complete improvisation. The whole thing is entirely improvised. Uh, now you try and reproduce the story as faithfully as you can, but the way you do it is entirely up to you, and you are playing. Yeah, um, a lot of illusory concepts. There's no, I mean, there's no finite way to do that. So, but it's the thing characterized with, with playback is you don't just want to repeat the story or give it back plain um, and kind of show the audience how clever you are at doing that. That would be boring. You want to go a little deeper. You want to give something back that wasn't said in words, but that was perhaps communicated through gesture and, and the sound of voice. That it's something you pick up from the teller that sits a little deeper. And I'll tell you what, it often happens that we play a story back and we invent certain things. We sometimes, the other day, we in, even invented a name of a character in the story that the teller had never mentioned. And then afterwards, the teller said, how did you know that person's name? Yeah, yeah, we yeah. We even got the name right. <laughs> and I said, I didn't, but I just picked it up somehow. Isn't that fascinating? That's that's actually really, really incredible. Um, so what if, if you could have a metaphorical billboard um, getting a message out to billions of people, uh, non-commercial billboard, um, what what would you put on a billboard that could just access the the lives and attention of many many? Wow, that's quite a question. What would you put out there? And it doesn't necessarily, it, or if helpful, it can of course be something that um, some it can be a quote or something similar to a quote that resonates with you. Um, if that if that's at all helpful there. Well. I uh, would say everybody's got a story to tell. And uh, I would also encourage people to tell their story, to find a place where they can tell their story. Now, everybody's got friends, and you tell your stories to your friends. But there's a step up from it. Um, and um, I would love to see uh, avenues emerge where people can really communicate their story I mean, with the social media, that is beginning to happen. But I think we're still just on the brink of something much bigger and deeper um, where people really tell their story and that story is being heard. Because um, people's stories are important. And when you listen to someone's story, you also validate that person. Certainly. And, and you appreciate them and you, you, you allow them to enter your world. And in some ways, insofar as that personal emotional context, um, social media lacks lacks a bit of nuance there, um, to put it gently. Yes. <laughs> in some ways, it's a lot about you know snippets, micro content, little bits here and there, as opposed to um, in in whole cloth a a full narrative from front to back. Yes. Now you've heard of a an initiative called StoryCorps. Uh no, not familiar. No. Okay, well that that'd be worth checking out as well. Um, they started perhaps 10 years ago. It's an organization throughout the USA called Story Corps. Corps uh, as in corpse. Okay, right, right corpse, yeah. Story Corps. And I'll link that up in the show notes and as well, of course. And uh, they set up lots of booths all over the country where people could literally record their story. Oh, actually, I think that I have um, encountered these guys before. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really, really interesting. And... They follow that principle that stories 
are important and should be heard and should be appreciated. And so they facilitated people telling their story. Yeah, certainly. Uh, now, if I had the time and the money, I would love to set something up like this. I'd love to put a, a note on the front door saying, uh, well, you know, and out there on, on social media, yeah. uh, come on in and tell us your story. We'll record it and we'll put it out there for you. And you can even send it to your friends and stuff in a form of a podcast. Uh, Certainly. But, but it's, you know, uh, it's not that simple because uh, once people come in to record their story, then uh, before soon you, you're dealing with editing. Uh, and you're dealing with uh, the length of the story, or, which is a you know, whole, whole all kinds of thing. other stuff, and it needs to be it all needs to be organized. Yeah. So that turns into a, Very a major tricky. piece of work. Yeah. And who's going to fund that? Who's going to be doing that? So, certainly not me. Uh, <laughs> I got a few other things to do, uh, and yet I, I I would love to give people that opportunity. When we ran this place as a normal cafe, um, I did. We had a lot of interaction with people who walked in and then just hear their story. Yeah. Uh, and that was. That was worth it. It was very worthwhile. Um, but then again, after a few years, you, you begin to realize, you know, I can't be staying here. I got to move up. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course, of course. From this kind of it's always the question of direct content. Where are things? Where are things moving? How are things moving forward? How are things sustainable? Which is a perpetual hanging question in the world of theater in so many ways. Um, yeah, but no, I really like that the idea of just tell your story, which I think is. I mean, it's echoed so frequently, but I feel like it's. It's often in almost like kind of uh, banal terms, just like you hear this idea and I don't know, I feel like it doesn't oftentimes communicate what it actually means or maybe it comes from a place that seems disingenuous for one reason or the other. But it really truly is a powerful thing, the idea of tell your story on that billboard, expressing the importance of that. Yes. And uh, and then there's an interesting challenge when it comes to people who speak other languages. What are you going to do there? Mm, um, yeah. I, I grew up in Europe, so there's languages all around you, German and French, Italian and Portuguese, Polish, Danish. I mean, all these languages, English. And um, my once you learn to speak another language or to understand another language, a whole other world opens up to you. Yeah. And... Certainly. I'd love to see something happen there. Um, there may be devices already where you can, where a, a certain text can be translated almost automatically. And there is to some degree, but at the same time, I feel like it's never going to be the same as actually learning a language because of the kind of different associations and pathways that are formed in your brain when you learn it. It yes. gives you it's that, true. like, that's where you get the new language. It's lens. true. It's true. Uh, in Amsterdam, where I used to live for a number of years, there is uh, one cinema uh, called the Outkijk. Well, that's mm -hmm. a Dutch word. Um, the, what does that translate to? Well, you could call it the Watchtower. The Outkijk really means it's a, it's a tower and from where you can... A look uh, uh, at some distance. The all right, all right. Um, the the tower, the outkick. Uh, but it also has another meaning, uh, and that meaning is more like this place gives you an alternative point of view. Ah, it's a lovely word right, right. in Dutch, and it's a good name. And uh, the whole remit of that little cinema is that they only play foreign films. Uh, mm -hmm. No English films and no Dutch films. So it's all Spanish, French, Portuguese, Italian, all these films from different countries and further afield, Indonesia, you know, uh, Egypt, uh, African places. Um, and I loved going to that cinema and then give you subtitles. So you get the flavor of the language and, and you see the people, you get there, you get to feel their, 
their world and their emotions. And, and meanwhile, you can read the subtitles so you can follow what goes on. Um, then uh, I, one holiday, so I was in Paris and I went to the cinema to see James Bond because I, I loved James Bond in those days. Certainly, certainly. And to my shock and horror, they had actually uh, dubbed uh, Mr. Bond's voice and he's now speaking French. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was awful. Oh, my Just word. I shocking. can't even imagine. Lip dubs are so, so difficult to do well. Um, yes. I, I'll never forget... Um, have you ever encountered any of uh, Hayao Miyazaki or Miyazaki Hayao's work, depending on who you ask? I have not. Who is this? Um, he is, uh, I think I heard him recently described as the Walt Disney of uh, Japan. Um, he He's an incredible, incredible creator and storyteller um, that has uh i think the most common title that might crop up there would be spirited away um insofar as the familiarity with our shorts they do decent dubs but i will never forget this movie called my neighbor totoro um which might ring bells for some of you guys listening out there okay. but there's an original version um that had uh it was like some kind of like long winding history about how it actually wound up getting dubbed in english um and it was phenomenal. And I'd, I'll never forget going back and finding a version of the of the movie that Fox had dubbed. And it was supposed to be like this official production, this whatever. And it was the one that got released on, you know, d on all the different media formats. And it was just awful. It was heartbreaking to understand that this was the understanding of this story that so many people had received. And I was like, no, what did you do to it? Yeah. Yes. Um but but anyway, that's yes. a, that's a bit of a diversion. So um, so the the subject we've sort of slipped into is 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 to do not only personal stories but also different cultures and the translation of stories and how how tricky it can be yes. to to understand. Um, but still, the story can be an amazing bridge to enter into to get some glimpse of another culture. And as we. As we wrap up here, um, I think that might be a great spot for um, you to speak a little bit about. Um, well, to start with, where can people find you, um, you, your work, and uh, what you're working on presently? Okay. Uh, our place is called StoryWorks, as mm -hmm. you know. And uh, we have a website um, that is storyworks.today. Um, right. Previously, we started off here as a, as a uh, coffee shop with all kinds of events going on, and we were called Story Cafe. And we, the same website, you can get to storycafe.org. That is the same website as storyworks.org. Ah, certainly, Today. certainly. It's, it's all Links back one and the same place. website. We have made some changes. Um, we found that uh, the, the events overtook the coffee shop uh, side of things. And so we have stopped being a coffee shop because we are running events and events take preference and we have to use the space uh, for events. Certainly, and so certainly. So when people come in, they come in for an event rather than just to sit in a corner somewhere for a cup of coffee. Yeah. Um, if I had more space, I could still run a coffee shop some other part of the building, yeah. if you like. But uh, that's not been possible here. And um, I feel like the cafes of uh, the U.S. might look slightly different than the cafes of Europe. Uh I, I don't know if that's still an accurate perception, but I feel like there's a lot more of like a kind of like reserved, um, just like you come in to do your own thing, to be in your own space when you're a cafe in the U.S., where I think it might be different in Europe. Yes, in Europe it's more communal. Yeah, certainly. That's right. And there's often music going on or even comedy or storytelling. Uh, my, in Amsterdam, people go to the coffee shop to smoke marijuana. 
Oh, right, right. Of course. <laughs> and you could smell it in the street, you know. And, uh, and Very I, I'm not sure what, what to make of that environment. Uh, but, but whatever. Um, and there's lots of amazing coffee shops in Paris and in other cities all over Europe. Uh, coffee shop is, is a, uh, quite a culture. Uh, mm. Over here, Starbucks have done an impressive piece of work to bring coffee back to the USA. Certainly. Um, but there's and, definitely something, communally speaking, that was lost in translation there. Yes, I, I would think so. So here at StoryWorks, we really want to focus on stories and all kinds of stories. Um, so we, have, um, we are now using Story Cafe as a brand name to a few events, a few activities that we do here. Um, one is a, an interview, we call that uh, Table for Two. Um, and we do that online, uh, live streamed uh, interview with artists mostly uh, to find out a little bit more about their lives and their motivation and their art form. And then they show us their art form and they play some music or they do whatever they do, poets. And uh, even a painter the other day, we had a painter come in and she brought a bunch of paintings and told us all about that. Uh, so that is live streamed. It's video. It's um, um, the other. Uh, we still have a group of poets who come in faithfully and they do their poetry, and that's always a wonderful. Oh, evening. that's wonderful. And then, of course, we have the playback. Um, so that all falls under the label of Story Cafe. Uh, Marcia is a pediatric therapist. We are finding that there's lots of families who have um, issues with kids with difficulties, kids with issues. Um, and she focuses on that. Now she's at a level where she teaches the teachers or she provides training. She helps parents rather than her working with the kids. Of course, parents who have kids with issues, they just want to drop their kid off and, uh, and then they want you to fix their kid oh, quickly. No. Um, yeah, and that's paradigms just... around, around therapy, I think, are definitely, are definitely tricky things, so, especially because neurological diversity is so... Um, I mean, it's an evolving conversation, but it's a very new conversation in many ways in yes, this culture. It is a new conversation, um, but it's all around. Um, we all have family members who have issues um, and kids with issues, but also uh, grown-ups with issues. And it's, it's important to pay attention and to help each other and to build community around that and to support each other, as I said. So uh, that work is called Story Circus because it's a bit of a circus, um, <laughs> you know, that sort of life. Um, and there's lots of families who really need help um, and the medical profession doesn't always provide that. Uh, the whole medical model is not quite geared toward it. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it's also labeled circus because a lot of the work that she does is very geared towards, hey, this is not necessarily therapy, kind of especially because of the stigma that is sometimes attached to the concept of therapy, less and less so, but also because, hey, you're coming in here to play, and that winds up being therapeutic, but it is it is labeled as circus because it's here to be part of part of something that's fun rather than like, oh, hey, you're here. That's part of this kind of traditionalist model of reductive science and medicine, et cetera, et cetera. That's beautifully said. You know, Marsha likes to say uh, a child's play, a child's work is play. It's got to mm, be play. I like that. And, and that's how you put a child to work. And you never even use that word, work. Um, and a child should have fun. And it should be fun. And, uh, and if the adult is good at what they do, they will make sure that the kid is enjoying themselves. That can be hard work for an adult. Uh, but if the kid is enjoying themselves, then good things begin to happen. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, and you want to steer away from that stigma. Indeed, the kid doesn't come in because they have a problem, so therefore they are a problem. No, 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 no. They come in just to play. And uh, we were talking about this word play earlier. 
That's a strong word in kids' play. Uh, our, our third section here is called Story Church, mm-hmm. um, and that's because I have a heart for biblical stories. Uh, you might have picked that up. Uh, <laughs> just a tad, just a tad. I, I just love those biblical stories, and I've done a lot of work around the biblical stories over the years mm-hmm. um, for television, but also on the stage. I've done all kinds of musicals and stage productions with uh, a lot of it all by myself, but also with small casts and sometimes with a large, large cast Certainly. and so on. Um, and so we decided to just give that a name. It's called Story Church. It's all about biblical storytelling in different ways. And um, I'm hoping to train up people who want to focus on biblical storytelling and really become storytellers of the biblical stories, um, but also have a vision for telling stories to camera um, and even bigger, you know, television drama with actors. Always a question of medium. Always a question of medium. Well, wonderful. Um, And of course, once again, as you guys all know, all of that, um, all the links and associated things you'll be able to find in the show notes. I would highly recommend checking out some of what these guys are doing. Um, of course, their perspective is brilliant and very, very diverse insofar as the ways in which they come at immersive theater. Um, it's something I've come to appreciate uh, quite a bit. Um, and from there, all I can say is uh, I really appreciate your time and coming on the show and being willing to chat for a bit. Well, thank you, Sky. You've been a great friend. And when you first arrived here, you were still in school or something. <laughs> yes, uh, just a wee lad. With uh, some of your friends, and you were a regular customer here, and that's kind of how, how we got to know you. And then li- years later, you suddenly you were back here, and you offered us your help, and you've given us some wonderful help here in a number of ways, and here you are back for a little interview. Appreciate it. Thank you. Funny how things change. Well, on the note, as everybody knows, um, all these things can be found on immersionation.com slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening. Calling all immersive adventurers, explorers, connoisseurs, and artists. The immersive revolution is just beginning. All that is to say, we would love any feedback that you might have on the show. What do you want to hear more of, less of? Anyone in particular you'd like us to have on the show? I would love to hear your thoughts. So please rate us, review us, or just drop us a line on the website at immersionnation.com. I always love having conversations about this wide and wild world that we are both living in and creating. Once again, this is the Immersion Nation podcast. Thank you for joining us in this adventure.